Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everyone, and once again, may I welcome you to our show. I am W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, and I am so glad that you have joined us once again for what will be a fantastic episode. My books are available in paperback, ebook, and Kindle at Amazon.com. Additionally, volumes 6, 5, 4, and 3 are in audiobook format at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes, with the others to follow as time permits. Your purchase of any of these books helps to support what we are doing, so please do buy one for yourself or someone you know, and do leave me some good feedback. And now, before I mash the gas and let out the clutch, we have a winner for our autograph book contest. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Murray is the latest winner. So congratulations to you, Michelle, and please... I hope you're listening. Get back to me and leave me your address so I can get this book going out to you. Now, listen, folks, many others wrote in but didn't answer the question. Apparently, you weren't listening to me. So pay attention, you numbskulls, and maybe you'll win the next time around. (laughs) 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 Now... Now, uh, Kev, I'm going to welcome you in a little early here. How All you right, doing, bro? I'm ready. All right, good. Now, folks, if you heard our last podcast, and if you didn't, I'll bring you up to speed a little bit. My brother read uh, a segment or an excerpt from a letter that Davy Crockett uh, had written to a friend. And after my brother read this letter, uh, we kind of joked about it, uh, and my brother commented that uh, the end of the letter kind of blew a hole in the letter because he spoke about a creature talking to him. But I have to tell you that it didn't sit well with my spirit when we were done with the podcast. And upon further investigation in myself and what amounted to be looking through some scriptures. Now, most of you people know that I'm a Christian man, and I make no apologies for that. I believe everything that the scripture says. I don't think it's a metaphor. It's meant to mean something else. And we're going to get into this here just for a minute. And I think this is going to blow your mind. So I did a little investigation, and I came up with a segment of Scripture that I'm going to read to you. This is not an exegesis of Scripture. I'm not preaching to you. I want to open your eyes eyes to the possibility of something really strange going on here, and it's going to go back to the Bigfoot. Now, Kev, I'm going to ask you to read that segment of Davy Crockett's letter uh, for the audience— 
And then I just want you to mention a little bit about who Davy Crockett was in relation to America. So go ahead, bro. Sure. I feel like I'm watching uh, a football game and we're going to do after further review. (laughs) (laughs) It is something like that. All right. All right. So um, Davy Crockett, he was an early pioneer in... uh, in the in the formation of the United States and specifically was heavily involved with the independence movement in the state of Texas or what was the territory of Texas in the early southern United States. And he fought for the independence of Texas um, from the country of Mexico at the time. And of course, Texas became independent and eventually became part of the United States of America. And he's known as a real ruffian frontiersman. And in the last podcast, I talked about the story of his childhood where he allegedly killed a large bear with a knife when he was three years old. Probably, obviously, a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, <laughs> either way, he's pretty tough. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the... the uh, the letter. So um, when Davy, way back when, was traveling into the interior of Texas, uh, which is which was close to a national forest that's now named after him, he wrote a letter actually to his brother-in-law about an encounter he had with a creature that was, quote, the shape and shade of a large ape man, unquote. And then he also uh, wrote, quote, it told me to return from Texas, to flee this fort and to abandon this lost cause. When I began to question this, the creature spread upon the wind like the morning steam swirls off of a frog pond, unquote. And of course, you know, the what he was writing about uh, uh, to abandon this fort, abandon this lost cause was related to what became his demise when he died uh, at the Alamo, uh, where where the Ameri- Americans, the Texans, were trying to fight off the Mexicans at that time, and uh, he was killed. Okay, Kev, excellent. All right, so now, folks, let me say this. I've told you I believe every word that the Scripture says. Adam and Eve, the flood, the plagues in Egypt, the destruction of Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole Megillah cover to cover. I don't believe anything was written to trick us or to fool us or to lead us in a different direction. And in that light, I'm going to read you something very short, and I'm bringing you right back to the Davy Crockett story. This segment that I'm reading you came from an Old Testament book called Numbers. And it's in the 22nd chapter of Numbers. And I'm not going to read you the whole story. It doesn't matter who this man was as far as what we're talking about. But I want you to hear what his experience was. Now, before I get into it, his name is Balaam. Balaam, B-A-L-A-A-M. And just so you understand, he had been given a direct instruction from God of something he wanted him to do. 
and here is what happened. By the way, I know from personal experience, when God tells you to do something, do it. Because if you don't, it's going to have ramifications. So here we go. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, get up and go with them. But still, only what I tell you may you do. So here's where the trouble began. It didn't take long for Balaam not to listen. And Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. So right off the bat, he was told to wait for them if they come and call on you. Then you go with them. And instead, he got up and went to go with them. So here we go. And God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and the angel's sword was drawn in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her head back in that direction. But the angel of the Lord stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall being on one side and a wall on the other side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. He hit her again. So twice the donkey saw this angel and Balaam saw nothing. And the angel went further and stood in a more narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel, she fell down underneath Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and he hit the ass a third time with the staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said to Balaam, get it, folks? The donkey is talking to Balaam. What have I done to you that you have hit me these three times? And Balaam said to the ass, now he's talking to the donkey. Because you have mocked me, I wish there was a sword in my hand, for I would kill you now. And the ass said to Balaam, Am I not yours, upon which you have ridden ever since I was small unto this day, and I never did anything to you? Then the Lord opened the eyes to Balaam, and he saw the angel standing in the way, and his sword was drawn in his hand, and Balaam bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you hit your ass these three times? 
Behold, I went out to withstand you because your way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. And if she hadn't turned from me, surely I would have slain you and saved her alive. Now, as I said to you, I believe this donkey was given the ability to talk to this man. Uh, and he then has a conversation with the donkey. Now, here's where I'm going with this, Kev. I believe that there were plans for Crockett beyond the Alamo. In other words, I believe that God wanted to use Davy Crockett in a greater way and was taking advantage of the presence of this Sasquatch in Texas, giving it the ability to speak and appear before him in a shocking way where there would be no doubt in his mind what was going on, shy of a hallucination, and trying to save him from a fate that he knew was going to occur at the Alamo. Who knows? Crockett may have become a president or some greater leader in the country. He was certainly a very brave man, uh, a man that could be trusted, a very proud man. And because he did not heed the message that came forth of abandoning this lost cause, he wound up dying with all the others in the Alamo, as our history tells us. What do you make of that? Well, you said you were going to blow us away. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can check that box. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how about talking donkeys and talking angels donkeys. with swords I mean, in their hands? The, the, um, I certainly can go along with the fact that, you know, Crockett, uh, there could have been bigger plans for Crockett, and he shouldn't, you know, perhaps shouldn't have died and certainly basically gone to the slaughter at the Alamo, you know, where they were outnumbered, outgunned, everything else. Right, um, right. So so I could certainly go along with that, that there could have been a greater destiny yeah. for him. Yeah, just incredible. And, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, his description, I once again, Kev, you know what it really reminded me of? Uh, uh, in the beginning of our uh, uh, creating this podcast, we went into the uh, Bauman account in Teddy Roosevelt's book, The Wilderness Hunter. Exactly. And you yep. remember us talking uh, uh, to the point that why would Roosevelt include this bizarre encounter from this man named Bauman in an otherwise factual journal, if you will, about hunting and people and what they ate and the scenery and all the other things we spoke about? Why would he include that in his book, Uh if he didn't trust the source and believe it to be legitimate. No, I agree with you 100%. I mean, the Bauman account is so fascinating to me because, you know, the Wilderness Hunter book by Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, it's like an encyclopedia. Yeah. The, everything is factual. And then you have this account that's in there. So, you know, you, you definitely 100% believe that, you know, former president... Theodore Roosevelt believed this to be absolutely true. Yep. Um, so, you know, and and I mean, I was joking about it in the original podcast about Davy Crockett, 
equating it to kind of a crazy expert witness at a trial where they come in and they give a great testimony and then they start to say something crazy like all of a sudden the Bigfoot started talking to them um, you know and I I made fun of that but we have no reason to believe that Davy Crockett was a crazy man you know he he served uh, in the uh, as a as a representative in his home state's House of Representatives representatives for example right so he was a, a successful politician you know and a very brave frontiersman not someone who was you know that i recall ever described as being you know crazy or uh you know hallucinating or anything right or a practical joker no definitely not a joker you know uh so so there you have it folks i throw that out there to you uh yet another twist uh to the bigfoot phenomena uh, which to me is really remarkable. Anyways, Kev, so let's move on here today. I know you've got something uh, waiting in the wings for us in our cryptids in the news and history and other oddities segment. I do, I do. And uh, we're going to go back to Outside Magazine's top 10 Bigfoot sightings. And uh, we're going to go to uh, uh, one that is known as the Marble mountain video with jim mills or sometimes just called the jim mills sighting okay and this i had never seen this video before bill until uh researching this and uh did have you seen the video i did i i hooked up to the link that you sent me and good. it is remarkable to say the least good i'm glad you saw it because we can talk about it because we're gonna we're gonna folks here we're i'm gonna do my best to describe what you will see when you watch this video and uh bill you and i can kick it around because you probably saw some different things than i saw or you know keyed in <coughs> keyed in on some slightly different things so feel free to jump in and add some description and then of course i'm going to uh publish the link to the video so that listeners can go out and see it on youtube and i'll publish that on our website bigfootterrorinwoods.com Kev, now these uh, these links for the various podcasts, they're kind of attached to the podcast, right? They open up the, the podcast and then the links are with that. No, so you, you go in to our website, BigfootTerryDeWoods.com, okay. and go to the Episodes tab. And when you click on the episode, there'll be a description in there about the episode, some other links, maybe a promo uh, for a free Audible copy of one of your books, and then I'll sh I'll show some photographs sometimes or some uh, embedded links to YouTube videos. Okay, very good. Yeah. All right. All right. So we will jump right in. So this sighting uh, is by a gentleman named Jim Mills, and he was a youth group leader, and he captured nearly seven minutes of footage of what's believed by some to be a Bigfoot. Certainly it looks like a Bigfoot to me when I go through the video. Um, the video's from June 2001 and began with the camera capturing Mills Youth Group as they took part in a backpacking trip in a place called the Marble Mountains in Northern California. And uh, these mountains are in the mountains of Klamath National Forest near a mountain called Boulder Peak. Hmm. So, you know, rural uh, Northern California and back, you know, 
18 years ago in June 2001. So kind of the beginning of the summer in Northern California. And this this region, Kev, this Klamath area uh, is rife with uh, reports and activity. Yeah, a lot of uh, sightings. It's it's very close to the border of Oregon Mm -hmm. and uh, in inland California up in the mountains. So pretty, pretty darn rural place. Wow. And and not to jump on you, but once again, you mentioned near very close to the border of Oregon and the account I'm going to share later on is from Oregon. Oh, very cool. (laughs) So go ahead, bro. Okay, so um, uh, it's a good sized group of students. I couldn't make out exactly how many there are. I'd say about 15. And uh, they they all catch sight of this figure silhouetted against silhouetted against the sky on a nearby ridge, and it's daytime, so it's blue sky, you know, a couple of puffy clouds, and it's beautiful. And he shoots this video uh, that has complete audio as well, as he's pointing it out to other folks in the group. And by the way, it is believed to be the longest ever video recording of a of a Bigfoot. So first off, when he's got the camera running, before they see the Bigfoot, they notice a pile of brush or branch and branches and trees, probably like three to six to eight inches in diameter. So some of the trees are good size and they're covered in a a bunch of like pine boughs. And, um, you know, I say it's a pile of brush, but it's really a shelter. So kind of it looks like a large tent that's made out of uh, like the structure of it are these four to eight inch diameter trees. And uh, and then it's covered with like uh, uh, pine boughs off of large pine trees. And then inside, it looks to be like a soft bedding area under this shelter. So really looks like a very large sleeping area, perhaps, you know, that a Bigfoot would sleep in. Yeah, and you know, when I was looking at this video, uh, first of all, the freshness of the structure, uh, the structure was, it wasn't made like even a month ago, I wouldn't say, because the stuff was still green, uh, for the most part, these boughs. Yep. And when- Absolutely. And when you looked at the front, when he panned by the front entrance- there was one tree that was clearly snapped about three or four feet off the ground that had been pushed over and leaned backwards to the ground to kind of make the ridge line or the ridge of what was going to be the shelter. And everything else was kind of laid against that. Yeah, no doubt about it. And while Jim is filming this, as he's looking at the shelter... He notes and documents on film that all of the trees that are used to form the structure for the shelter are snapped off. So, you know, no sign of any kind of hatchet or axe marks, certainly no signs of any cutting with a saw. And uh, I honestly can't imagine how you would snap, you know, an eight inch diameter tree off Um without a lot of uh, mechanical help or extreme strength. Yeah, and Kev, even a three-inch diameter tree, three or four inches. I know, and like you said, too, they're green. 
you know, they're green trees, so they're not rotten trees. Right. Um, and, you know, if you've ever tried to do something like that, it's it's not really possible. <laughs> not uh, for me, I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in the video, the kids are all horsing around like kids do. And then one of the kids, you know, and they all appear to be teenagers. One of the kids sees a Bigfoot up on the ridgeline clear as day. So they're basically down in a valley and looking up at a ridgeline of a mountain. And you see this silhouetted Bigfoot moving along the ridge, just kind of walking along the ridge. And, um, you know, it's right up against the bright sky. And the movement of the creature is very interesting and clear. So sometimes it's like he's pacing back and forth. Um, sometimes it's like he's just walking along slowly. And they they describe while they're looking at it multiple times, because it goes on for minutes, how long its arms are. They say almost to his knees. And they, they all mention, because you can hear all the kids in the background, um, that it doesn't walk like a person. And it's hard to describe the gait of the creature, but it doesn't look like a person, you know, and it does look very tall. And uh, the uh, hands definitely appear to be down by the knees. And, you know, the other thing I noticed, Kev, and I'm sure you saw it too, it was making these very strange arm movements. They were almost like circular, like its arms were flexible or loose, like a piece of uh, soft taffy. It was very yeah. weird, very it's weird. weird. It's a weird gait and weird movement. Um, yeah. Just not like something you've seen before, which makes sense, you know, if in fact it is a Bigfoot. Um, what's also really important to note when you're watching this video, it's not overly dramatic. You know, so the the kids are goofing off even as they're watching this hairy man walking along the ridge. And then uh, one of the kids is actually joking at one point that they should bag him with a tranquilizer gun. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny. Like, it, it definitely doesn't seem staged in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then uh, Jim Mills, the leader, he says, no, no, all we need are these photos. Um, you know, that'll be enough proof. Of course, you know, probably not the case. Right. And then one of the kids goes on to say, no, 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 we should show up with the creature sleeping in a cage. That would be proof. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, the old movie, Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> yeah, we know what happens whenever you try to cage a monster. <laughs> exactly. Good, good uh -oh. thing. Good th you may have better proof, but good thing you didn't try to put him in a cage. <laughs> Sorry, so, I and didn't, then it gets I a little know crazy he could escape. Here. So, Apparently, all this happened on a Tuesday morning. And remember, these folks are by what appears to be, you know, the home of some large creature or, you know, at a minimum, some group of humans that are out in the wilderness. And after they see this creature, they decide to camp out there and spend the night there. <laughs> and uh, and then the video, they start the video again in the morning on uh, on Tuesday morning. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, on Wednesday morning, and uh, they look up at the ridge and no one's there and they say, you know, well, he must have, the creature must have moved on to uh, to a different location, you know, something like that. So it's, it's I mean, they're seeing this thing for a long time, relatively long time, documenting on video. 
they think they're next to its house, and then they end up camping there for the night in sleeping bags under the stars. So yeah, and they're this definitely is... brave. Or crazy. <laughs> this is how people get in trouble, Kev. Bad <laughs> you mean other than catching large making. creatures and putting them in cages? <laughs> they're lucky somebody didn't get dragged out of a tent that night. Uh, oh, is yeah. all that I can say. I know, I know. Just absolutely crazy video. But it's video. a great account. I encourage our listeners, again, when we drop this video, I'll put the link up under the episode section of uh, com. I encourage you to take a look at it. It is an amazing video. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, Kev. Uh, uh, you know, and of course we'll have naysayers, but really I don't care about them. Uh, I think it was a fantastic video. I don't think they positioned somebody up on this ridge. It was quite a distance away, too. It was, but you could see it so clearly. Yeah. And they were pointing it out to one another without, uh, you know, using any binoculars or anything. But the video, they were able to zoom in on it so they could see it better. But you could see it clearly with the naked eye, apparently, up on the ridge. And again, you know, the video lasts for several minutes. Yeah. You know, and it reminded me watching it. I have this account, which I know we'll get to somewhere uh, sometime. The husband and wife described the Sasquatch they were looking at as being uh, in appearance like a nervous man waiting for a bus. Oh, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of what it looked like. That's exactly what I was seeing watching that thing. It was like fidgeting and twitching his arms and kind of really looked like he was upset or even like uh, uh, kind of dopey in his actions, you know, like he was indecisive about what he was doing, almost like he was throwing a tantrum up on the ridge. No, and, and Jim Mills in the video, he actually says that in a narration, you know, something along those lines where he's he's kind of saying like, hey, you know, get away from my house, you know, yeah, uh, and things like that, you know, saying that that's because he looks frustrated. And the, yeah. although the Bigfoot is moving along, it's not really going anywhere. Right. You know, right. It's, it, at one point it turns around and it goes back and it walks back, but it's staying up on this ridgeline, like you said, kind of like a nervous man waiting for a bus. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And uh, th- there's such synchronicity as I go along uh, with all things Bigfoot. Uh, You know, what happens to one happens to another. A description at some point lends itself to another description. Uh, And it's it's this way, you know, and you say to yourself, is everybody wrong? Can't Can't we plug one piece into another and say there is continuity here? Uh, The people are seeing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, you see some things that are not believable. Myself, when I look at this video, this is pretty interesting video and clear as day. And again, with all with this large youth group there as well. And then the structure that would be, you know, pretty darn difficult to build by hand without tools. And um, that whole combination of events, pretty interesting. And going back to 2001. And also, you know, a couple of the little boys kind of mouthing off, trying to show themselves to be, you know, Superboy in front of the little girls, you know. <laughs> uh, the kid the kid who said we should shoot him with the tranquilizer gun would probably be the first one running for the river if he came down the hill. 
<laughs> All right, man. No, that is excellent stuff. So let me uh, let me break into this account here. Good job with that, Kev. It was really uh, really an interesting uh, little exegesis of that video. And that, folks, you got to see it. I mean, it's just it, it, it's crazy good. Uh, but let me get into this here. Uh, this account uh, was given to me by a fellow named Edwin Wright and his hunting partner, George Hendrickson, both of whom are hunters from Oregon. So we're near to where this video was taken, uh, uh, which is quite interesting as well. So every year, Eddie and I plan a week of fall hunting in Washington's rainforest. Our target for this year's hunt was Roosevelt elk. The elk live in the thick, dense underbrush and forest and the coastal mountain range of Washington State. Is uh, Excuse me, let me backtrack a little bit here. The elk live in the thick, dense underbrush and forest and the coastal mountain range of Washington State is the only one of the only locations in the world where they can be found. This region of the United States receives well over 100 inches of rainfall annually, and because of this, the underbrush is extremely lush. Now, any hunter will tell you that the stick underbrush brings with it advantages and disadvantages. The advantages are that it can provide plenty of cover for the hunter, as well as being an ideal habitat for the animals. The disadvantages are the constant rain and dampness as well as the extremely limited visibility for taking a quality shot at your prey. Most rifle shots will be taken at a range of 50 yards or less, and your typical bow shot is between 20 and 30 yards. I once took a bow shot at five of five yards in there, and that's how close you can get to the animals in these forests. Because of the diverse weather and habitat changes in this region, Roosevelt elk are one of the most difficult species to hunt. It is because of this difficulty that time spent on the hunt has a direct correlation to your success rate. Eddie and I keep a detailed hunting log on each of our trips. By doing so, we can fine-tune our techniques to help ensure that we have successful hunts in the future. And we have found that when we plan hunts for 10 to 12 days, we have a 100% success rate, whereas a five-day hunt only yields between 60 and 80% success. So these guys, folks keep logs they know what they're doing i mean they're like little albert einsteins in the world of hunting i just broke in there <laughs> to say that to you uh because that weighs heavily on the rest of the story as far as i'm concerned our typical hunt consists of both bow and rifle we start with the bow since it's our preferred method but if we find ourselves running out of time the rifle becomes our weapon of choice there are so many times when the animal is so close to us in the undergrowth and yet still too far away to land an effective bow shot. However, the rifle can be effective on day one for a well-schooled hunter. If you're going to have success with the bow 
all of your ducks must be in order. And that starts with technique and location. Our most successful methodology to date is hunting either within the confines of a well-timbered canyon or near any river drainage areas that you can find. We also construct blinds in well-traveled areas and use calls to attract bulls, getting real aggressive with them when they start to get tight to our position. Generally, the two of us like to situate ourselves closely to each other whenever possible, with the slope of a canyon being our preferred haunt. From that position, we have had the greatest success in sighting moving animals both above and below us. An elk can surprise you by moving right across your path while you're stalking and be taken down with a quick shot. For this particular hunt, we had planned for four days. Even though this is on the lowest end of our success window, we knew the area extremely well, and our confidence level was very high. Having experienced good success here in the past, we felt that we would score again. After setting up our tent by the truck, we took the quad into the forest and began our day's hunt. It's a rough hike into this terrain, but the two of us worked out during the year to prepare ourselves for such excursions. The area that we were heading into was a steeply sloped canyon that had a very well-used trail running up and down within it. The trick here was to position yourself in the best possible way to get off a quality bow shot. Too many times an elk is just out of effective range or slips behind some cover right as you are ready to let go. That, my friend, is the struggle of hunting. Day one came and went without seeing any Roosevelts, and on day two we headed directly back into the same location since we were satisfied with the overall animal population that we had seen the day before. We had better luck from the get-go. We saw a giant 5x5 bull walking by us at about 50 yards. Waiting for him to come closer, we waited for him to come closer, but we had no luck. We also saw a 3x3 after him, but we passed hoping to bag the larger, more mature bull. Now, I'm going to skip a paragraph here. It was at 11.17 in the morning when about 30 elk came running down the trail. I know the exact time because I just looked at my watch, and you never see these animals running unless they've been frightened. We looked at each other through the opening in the brush between the two blinds. Just four minutes after the herd ran through, I heard the snap of a branch and my eyes rolled in the direction of the sound. I could see a tremendous black figure moving down the trail, passing behind an opening in some pine boughs. I gave a small finger signal to Eddie and a moment later a gigantic Bigfoot appeared walking through a break in the trees where the herd had just run by. Three steps later, he was once again concealed by the trees before reappearing yet again. We watched him as he walked down the entire trail toward the base of the canyon, the creature coming in and out of view numerous times before it completely left our sight. The two of us came out of our blinds speechless, and we first looked at each other and then looked down into the canyon where it had walked. We were unable to put any words together, 
and I was completely and totally dumbfounded by what had just transpired. I was in a complete and utter daze, being as close as I will ever come to a true state of shock, feeling like my mind had short-circuited. I was momentarily shut off as a human being. I'm surprised I didn't crap in my pants. And if it had come towards us, I'm not even sure if I would or, would or could have pulled my rifle out and shot it. I almost felt like I was under some type of mind control as it came into view and passed by, as if all my abilities had been put on hold. It's very difficult to put into words. I think it must have been about 15 or 20 minutes before we regained full functionality. At that point, the forest had become completely still, and there were no signs of life whatsoever. We walked over to the trail, and there were no indications of any prints, just wide, flattened areas of pine needles where it had walked. The ground was very hard and well-traveled, which made it impossible for it to make any real prints. The two of us had heard all the talk of Bigfoot. We were living and hunting in places where many people claimed to have seen them, and yet, up to that point in time, we had seen nothing ourselves. When the fog in our mind had dissipated, we went back to the truck and recorded all of the details in a notebook. Our sighting had occurred at about 11.20. It was drizzling out, and we had our rain gear on in the blinds. We had seen the elk herd run by, followed by hearing the branch snapping. When it first came into view, the Bigfoot did not seem like it was chasing the elk. It was just traveling and had more than likely spooked the herd unintentionally. It must be seen as a predatory animal to them, otherwise they would not have run from it in such a fashion. Because of our position in the blinds, it was much higher than us. It didn't stop or turn to look in our direction. Rather, it seemed to be completely unaware of our presence. The two of us agreed that it had to be every bit of eight to ten feet tall, a tremendous monster of a beast. Neither one of us could remember measuring it up to anything it had either passed by or through, but it was like a mega monster from a comic book or something, reminding me of the way they depict the Hulk busting out of a shirt and flexing his muscles. When it passed by in front of us, we could see its dark brownish-black hair. It hung off the body and looked kind of shaggy. Not at all like a bear's coat, but more like a long-haired dog breed. I distinctly remember the hands being about 20 inches long. They were massive, like an oversized baseball mitt. Its head and shoulders looked like one piece, and there was no visible neck. As it descended the slope, the upper torso was cut into a clear V-shape like that of a bodybuilder. And if, if I descended the slope, oh, excuse me, and if I had to venture a guess as to its width, I would say that it spanned five feet or more across the shoulders. Another thing comes to mind. From the back view, the muscles of its upper back were so enormous 
that its head was virtually concealed when you looked at it from the side. Its jawline clearly protruded forward from the rest of the face, whereas the nose appeared to be almost flush. I only recall seeing skin on the face and fingers, but what skin I did see looked to be extremely dark gray. Its face also seemed to be deeply wrinkled, almost like it had grooves in it instead of wrinkles. Even though we hadn't scored a kill, we left that day and headed back to Oregon. I think that I speak for both of us when I say that we are different people today because of that event. We will never hunt or go into the woods with that same mindset that we had before. And seeing that Bigfoot had transformed both of our lives and our thinking. What do you make of that, Kev? Wow. Pretty great account. I, I love the descriptions, too, of, uh, of the beast. You know, everything from its uh, height and width at eight feet tall and five feet wide to the descriptions of the... The hair on it and the facial features that the silhouette looks like, uh, fantastic. Like like uh, what a, de you know what a detail oriented, successful hunter, would uh, collect. Yeah, and you know the the fact that throughout the tale, I mean, he did go on and on, and I can appreciate that. I actually skipped a, a paragraph for the sake of all listeners, uh, but. You know, these guys really plan. And, you know, uh, the devil is in the details, as they sell you. You know, they keep a diary. Uh, they've logged that certain amount of days give them a 100% success rate. I think he said 10-day hunts, 10- or 12-day hunts. And the less time they spend, the less successful they are. So these guys are really in tune uh, with what they do and where they go. And then they have this encounter, uh, and the detail, as you said, uh, given in the encounter, the description and and their observations as hunters, uh, is pretty incredible. Yeah, and um, you know they're bow hunters as well, which pretty difficult to be up in the wild in very rural places, you know, where the game that you're hunting can easily spread out and and avoid you. And be successful, you know, with a bow <laughs> yeah. on a regular basis hunting. It's pretty pretty tough. I, I also thought it was interesting. I skipped uh, one part of the description here. I'm looking at the notes I jotted while you were reading the account. You know, the hand's 20 inches long. That that kind of gets back to the, uh, you know, the, uh, the account that I went through where it was like, you know, the, they were saying the hands and arms appeared to go down to the knees of the creature when they were videotaping it. Yeah. Well, think, think of this, Kev. He's talking a creature that's 8 to 10 feet tall, and he's guessing the shoulder span to be 5 feet. I know, yeah. Then he's talking about it being cut like a bodybuilder and using the imagery of comparing it to the Hulk busting out of its shirt. I mean, yeah, and, and how the 
you know, of course, we always hear a virtually no neck or no visible neck. Yeah. And then how, of course, that the head blends right into the shoulders. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of it's it's funny. I'm sitting here. We're doing this recording and I have a uh, sticker in front of me from uh, Yeti Coolers. And their silhouetted sticker looks exactly like that. So, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like it just happens to be here on the bulletin board in front of me. And I'm like, look at that. That's exactly what that looks like. I, I wouldn't have thought to describe it that way. I also thought it's interesting of what they're hunting. You know, they're hunting these Roosevelt elk. And I'm going to have to look it up after we get done with the recording to see if these elk are named after uh, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, so, Oh, yeah. You know, we were talking about Roosevelt's publication, The Wilderness Hunter, and I'm going to have to look uh, as soon as we get done with this to see if uh, that's one of the animals that uh, Teddy recorded inside of The Wilderness Hunter. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's not uncommon, right? Uh, well, it no. is kind of uncommon for a man to attach his name to an animal, but perhaps, you know. Never know. I mean, it could be just a region. I just don't know. Right. I mean, well, look, uh, astronomers attach their name to comets that they discover. Sure. Uh, but I don't know too many animals that are named after a person, but maybe this one is. Mm -hmm. You we'll know, and then out. we're talking about the size of this thing. Let's dip back into the uh, youth group seeing this creature on the ridgeline and this structure. Now, if you correlate the size of the creature that we were just talking about to the breaking of those branches, now you can make a connection. Something like that has a lot of power. Yeah, not hard to believe at all. You know, it's just 20-inch hands. Yeah, eight feet tall, five feet wide. You could definitely break an eight-inch diameter tree off and <laughs> snap it off. <laughs> Well, he might have to use some type of kung fu kick. <laughs> maybe some type of spinning Sasquatch wheel kick. Yeah, That's leaping great. in the air. <laughs> kung fu squatch. <laughs> See it in a theater near you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, that is a great account, bro. And what do we have today? We got anybody uh, writing into us? Yeah, we got some great listener mail. Um, and we're going to start off with uh, Michelle's letter. You know, you mentioned her winning the contest this week. I'll uh, I'll read her letter. So okay. she says, uh, um, hello, I think Bigfoot is more animal with human characteristics. So she definitely answered the question. Bill. Uh -huh. uh, and she says, to add to this, I think there is some sort of supernatural aspect. So many encounters mention cloaking or just disappearing. I was in the woods with my cousin and we screamed and were chased and flanked by something as very young children in rural western New York in the late 60s. It scared us to death. And the adults just didn't believe us. Wow. So she had some kind of encounter there in Western New York. And then she ends it with just love, love your shows, Michelle. Awesome, Thank Michelle. You, Michelle. Thanks again Good. and congratulations to you for signing in and answering the question. Hello out there. <laughs> now, Kev, you see, Michelle is talking about now this uh, 
people talking about this cloaking or disappearing. And what yeah. was what was the words? What were the words that Crockett used to describe the the creature leaving his presence? Oh yeah, what did he say? It disappeared like a uh, like the mist over a frog pond. Right. Yeah. So so now. It, it, to me, it almost seems like he described it as like, now you see it and now you don't. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, on these, you know, a lot of these aspects where people say it disappeared. I also believe that, you know, the thing just has amazing camouflage. You know, we've talked about it like like, uh, you know, the uh, soldiers that are snipers in the military and they wear those ghillie suits, you know, that long fur almost seems like uh, a bit of a ghillie suit where all of a sudden they just lay down and they seem like they disappear. Um, I think that's part of it. Certainly. You know, again, we talk about the flesh and blood Bigfoot versus, uh, you know, the supernatural Bigfoot. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely remarkable. And, uh, uh, the more I go on with this, the more uh, fascinated I am with all of the different aspects, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's and Michelle, once again, congratulations. And we'll be having more contests where more people can win uh, and we'll mix it up a little bit. So uh, congrats. Congrats. And thanks for uh, chiming in with us. Good, good, good uh, response, Michelle. All right. We go now to the other side of the world to uh, Wilan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Hong Kong. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And uh, he or she, I'm sorry, I don't know, uh, writes, I love this show and the combination of knowledge, wit, and humor that you bring to the table. You are also correct uh, in stating that the amount of evidence is overwhelming for this creature's existence. I would venture to guess that many bones have been run across shy of a complete skeleton that people have walked right by thinking they were those of another animal. You are the best. Wow. You know, pretty cool. Fantastic. You know, and Kev, I just had a telephone conversation with somebody the other day who contacted me. Uh, We spent about an hour on the phone, maybe more. Uh, She had an encounter and, uh, she made the very same point, which I thought was very astute. What if you run across a bone? Hey, you, you're, you have no idea what you're looking at. You see a giant femur bone laying somewhere. It could be from a Bigfoot. Maybe you think it's from a bull moose or whatever else you think it's from. And you just pass it by. You're not just going to pick up a femur and take it to a local university for further examination. No, I think that's very true. I mean, if I was hiking along and I saw a big bone, I don't think I would pick it up. You know, not me. No, No, it doesn't 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 fit the logical model. Yeah, I mean, I might grab an antler rack or something like that, but I'm not going to be grabbing a bone to take along. Oh, look at this bone I found in Arizona, you know. No, no. <laughs> you know, if I saw a T Rex's head hanging out of the side, there you of my go. Head, I might I pick might. that yeah. up. A large tooth, I would pick up. Yeah, yeah, but a bone, yeah. not necessarily. No. And that very no. astute by Wheelon to uh, make that uh, comment. Uh, very, very astute audience we have here, Kev. We certainly do. Um, all right, so let's go to Wyoming, in the center of the United States. One of those big square states from Seth. 
Um, he writes, if what you say is true, and I believe it is, the fact that your brother has been where some accounts have occurred is no coincidence. I believe this show was meant to happen with the two of you teaming up. It's the perfect mix of brashness and brains. There's no other Bigfoot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we won't ask him to delineate that. <laughs> he says there, there's no other Bigfoot podcast that is as discerning and intuitive as this. I, too, have walked the woods at Priest Lake. And each of the three times that I have, I got the creepiest feeling that I'm being watched and or flanked. And yet, for whatever reason, I still am compelled to go back. If anything happens, you will be the first to know. Regards, Seth. <laughs> I want to go back to Priest Lake now. Yeah. It's pretty far away from here. Now. Yeah, maybe you'll run into Seth there. Hey, that would be pretty funny. <laughs> uh, that was uh, very poignant. And yeah, well cool. uh, laid out, Seth. Very, cool very stuff. good. Yeah. And you know what? How about that, Kev? He said that when he was at Priest Lake several times, so he must like the area, that each time he felt like he was being watched. Yeah. Uh, isn't that weird, you know, when people use that? And yet he goes back. You know, well, it's, a, uh, it's a beautiful place. You know, it, it's spectacular. Um, but it is, you know, when you feel like you're being watched. I mean, I, I always told my kids when they were little and I would still tell them now, you know, in uh, in this kind of a setting where kind of if you think something might be wrong or someone is watching you, something is watching you, trust your instincts, you know, because it's to me, it's part of your survival instinct is to yeah. give you that feeling that, you know, something might be wrong or someone else is there. That's right. Um, so so I have a lot of respect and a lot of time for folks when they say, boy, I felt like something was watching me, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I'm going to give the audience a little experiment to do uh, to test the water, so to speak, with what my brother was just talking about. How many times have you been sitting at a traffic light and suddenly you turn your head to the left or the right uh, and you don't even know why, only to realize that the person next to you was looking at you? And they they generally flip their head back, you know, looking straight ahead out the windshield because they don't want you to know now you've caught them uh, <laughs> looking at you. But to me, what happens is their staring or their concentrated gaze on you touches off an instinct within you that you're being watched and your body reacts to it without your mind or anything else even knowing what's going on. It just turns, and you realize the person was staring at me. This is the exact same survival instinct that Kevin was just talking about, where he was warning his children, if you ever feel that, get out of Dodge, because something may very well be afoot. Very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Now, Bill, when you pull up to the traffic light and you're wearing your Bigfoot costume, yeah. people might be looking at you because of that. 
Yes, so what? <laughs> and then I rolled down the window and said, hey, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? <laughs> I All right, my, Bill. Our, I showed... last, uh, our last note comes in from Benny in Manchester in the United Kingdom. So this is across the pond. This is not Benny Hill, is it? Oh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the Benny Hill music. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, Benny writes, I'm positively enthralled with your show. And in reference to your other oddities segment, I would like to hear your take on what we Brits refer to as Spring Heels Jack. Sorry, but I have no Bigfoot sightings to report. You blokes keep it rolling. Awesome. Yeah, Kev, I've never heard of Spring Hills Jack, but I'll definitely put it on the list, Benny. Yeah, Kevin, I have heard of Spring Hills Jack. Uh-huh. And the first time I heard about this creature, or whatever it may be, was from an English storyteller by the name of Lionel Fanthorpe. And he uh, occasionally is a guest on Coast to Coast AM, uh, which is a uh, late night radio show that I uh, listen to. I've also been a guest on that show with George Norrie, very fine interviewer, and uh, Lionel Fanthorpe uh, told the tale of Spring Heels Jack. Uh, which is a very bizarre creature slash humanoid like being that has ridiculous leaping and jumping mm-hmm. abilities. Ah, hence the name Spring Spring Heels Jack. Cool. So you know what? Since our segment is uh, cryptids and other oddities, uh, someday let's do a little blast on the Spring Heels Jack. And uh, see what we can bring to light. I'll put it on the list. It sounds cool. Yeah, no, nah, it's definitely cool. And is that it? Is that the last one? I think that's it for the week, Bill. All right. Well, we had a great show. And, folks, we thank you once again for tuning in. And as we part ways, may I remind you once again, always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.